You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Angela Mollard is one of the nation's most popular journalists, with a high profile across TV, radio, newspapers and magazines. Her deft and relatable commentary on her views, own life and struggles makes her one of the most trusted and eagerly consumed writers when it comes to family life and issues of the day. So, Angela, welcome to Five of My Life. Hello, Nigel. <laughs> it's so nice to have you here. Um, we are going on a journey uh, through the 90s. I know. Yeah. So it dates I, me, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it doesn't date you, but it clearly was an important decade mm. because your first three are all from the 90s. And on Five of My Life, it's traditional that we always start with the film. And you have chosen Juliet Stevenson's favourite role, Angela Mingeli's second film, the uh, romantic hit, Truly, Madly, Deeply. Tell us about that. Oh, I picked this film because it's the only film I've ever been to the cinema to see twice. And I never go to anything twice because I think it's a waste of life. This movie, I was sitting working in the New Zealand Herald in Auckland. It was 1991. Um, I'd come from a provincial town in New Zealand. And this film was just everything I wanted in life. I wanted to break out of New Zealand. I wanted to go to the UK. I wanted to tell stories. And in, what's beautiful about this film is that, as you mentioned, it's Juliet Stevenson, who's a theatre actress, alongside Alan Rickman. And one of the interesting things about Alan Rickman in this film is that he's a good guy. He's a fun guy. He's a, you know he's comedic. We know him as that kind of villain in all those um, diehard movies. But this was Alan Rickman, you know, in the 90s at his best. This, in, look, this film is basically about a, a guy who dies and his partner grieves him and he comes back basically to annoy her to set her free. It's kind of being considered the cerebral version of Ghost. And why it captivated me is that I had studied English literature. I had done my teaching to high levels in speech and drama. So I was so au fait with um, literature, the UK, uh, everything British. And suddenly this film made me want to leave New Zealand, made me want to go and uh, work in the UK and to tell stories. And interestingly, I've followed Anthony Minghella's, the director's career ever since. Um, he obviously died, you know, at quite a young age, but he, of course, went on to make The English Patient and to uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley. And I just loved this movie for its combination of, it was so theatrical and it was the storytelling within it was so beautiful. But interestingly, Nigel, I then thought, Juliet Stevenson, whatever happened to her? I'd never seen her. She'd never been in anything else. And I had thought this woman was extraordinary. Anyway, a couple of years ago, I was in Adelaide for the festival, the Adelaide Festival, and she was doing a one-woman show called The Doctor. And she was extraordinary. She was as brilliant as I'd ever known her to be right back then, back in 1991. So I think it just that movie to me 
crystallized a desire to move from the periphery of the world to the center of it. I'd, I'd love hearing you talk about that film. For me, it, it actually had an enormous impact on me as well. It came out in 1990 uh, and I went to uni in Bristol and then I moved to London to try and start a career. Mm. And that film was filmed over 28 days in Bristol and London. So oh. it, it's a, every single pub, restaurant, street, you go, oh yeah, I know that, I know that. And those two actors, they just completely nailed it. But the thing ab- about the film that I find, I mean, it's a wonderful film, uh, really, really clever, is it's comic and soppy, but also quite profound. Mm. And that's a re- something that I think, at the risk of embarrassing you, you do very well in your writing, where to tiptoe between the two worlds of populist and moronic and go down the middle. So it's actually entertaining and thought-provoking, as opposed to, you know, you, you can be oh. dull, academic. And there's, there's a sentence from your writing that I, I just adore. You're talking about women who, who sort of uh, uh, finally think, oh, fuck this, I'm going to actually, you know, say what I think. And you go, they boldly deliver common sense in the same brisk manner their grandmothers dusted flour off covered hands on their aprons. Oh. That's, a, that's, a, that's a real talent to be able to write like that, like Bingelli writing that film, where entertainment, is what I'm trying to do on Five My Life, where you go, it's, it's, it's not a chore to listen to, it's not a chore to watch the film, but actually there's a really, really serious theme, which is when and how do you let go of the past and focus mm. on the future? I mean, and you haven't got to have a loved one you know, pass away, but on anything, it can be kids leaving home, it can be selling houses, leaving university, or indeed leaving New Zealand. Yes, and I think I love what you say there. It's To me, it says life is survivable, but the worst of life is survivable. You lose your partner, you get divorced, you have illness, and, you know, the job that I do, which is an interesting mix. It's so lovely what you said. I really appreciate that. But I, I, um, I interview people, but I also tell my own stories. So I'm gathering stories from other people. I feel like a bow bird sometimes and then I'm almost using f- tiny phrases or, or thoughts from those things and I think that ability to exist to keep on going is one of the things the most profound things that I've learned as a journalist is people just keep on going and remarkable individuals that that I just you know I've had the privilege to sit in front of. Now there's something in your work that I, I have wanted to ask you is the challenge of the content being personally based. Mm. Now, now I, I have been known once a decade to write a book and I, and I sort of wince and think, well, no one's going to read it anyway. And, and, <laughs> then no, I, and I, I'm sort of committed now when I'm turned 70, I'll write another one. But I don't write this weekend about an argument I might have had with Kate. Not mm. that we ever argue. You know, I, I, my, my pro life is private. Mm. Yeah, as if anyone would be interested. But you, your wonderful columns and things, you know, you mine your life. Mm. And I, would you mind talking about how you how you you cope with that? That's interesting because over the I've been a columnist now with News Corp for twelve years. So um, in that time, I've sort of it's ebbed and flowed my willingness to talk about my life because of course there's a lot has happened in that twelve years. I've, I've my children have grown up; they've become teenagers. I've separated in, in a new relationship, so a lot has happened. I've had friends who've taken their own lives. I've had um, friends who've died from breast cancer. So you know, sometimes people say, "Oh, it's confessional journalism." I just think it's real life journalism. And I think I am most touched when somebody comes up to me in the supermarket and says, 
I really loved what you said about that. It just actually actually happened this week. Somebody came up to me in an event and she just said, you know that thing you said about your daughter when she was 12? My daughter is now 22, so 10 years ago. She remembered the exact phrase and the phrase was, make sure you swim behind waterfalls. And I just thought when I was, this was a column I'd written and it was about her and I just had a list of things and I thought, this is what I want for my 12-year-old. And and it's what she wanted for her 12-year-old. So, yes, there's been times I've overstepped the mark. And I'll be honest with you, um, Nigel, there, I wrote a book called The Smallest Things. And it was uh, a book about thoughts on making a happy family. And my marriage fell apart probably six months afterwards. So, not, not egg on before, face. Not, not the week before launch date. <laughs> not the week before. But can you imagine the, the ignominy of writing a book with that subtitle and it being on the shelves and your marriage is falling apart? Mm. It was incredibly challenging. But it didn't make the book redundant or n- not important. It was still a book that, to me, meant a lot. And, you know, people still come up to me and, and mention things from that book. So uh, I just don't think we can always predict what's going to happen to us in life. It just doesn't unravel the way we think it is. But back to your point about being confessional, that's what I like to read. I like people's real stories. And, um, and you know, if, if that sometimes offends people or uh, I don't write about my sex life. I, I have limitations. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know why it would upset anybody. I, I, I find your writing incredibly relatable. I mean, I've been reading lots of your stuff. I mean, I read it anyway. But oh, you in, poor in, thing. <laughs> you know, it's great. It's, it's fantastic. But but it, it, the, the question was more about, and, and you've answered it very well, was more about not what other people think, it's about whether you find it a burden. Oh, bloody hell. I, I You know, that, that's a really good story, how, I don't know, how difficult it is to bring up daughters or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, and, and you know that there will be thousands of people out there that will enjoy and learn and benefit from reading it but oh, I don't want to 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 put for me not for mm. other people mm. you know I don't want to put myself myself out there there's two things I do uh one is if I'm writing about my daughters, they read every single word before it's printed so they right. have uh, they have write a veto on it and secondly sometimes things happen in my life to people that I love or know about and I asked to borrow their story, but I distance it from myself. And there are journalistic devices from doing that. So it may be an anecdote that I repatriate to a friend, an unnamed yeah. friend, or it may be um, someone interstate. Even, or I just add distance because the point is I'm t- it's the story that matters, not who it happens to. So, you know, if you are going to chronicle life, sometimes you've got to chronicle difficult, uncomfortable funny, amusing bits. I mean, look, occasionally I've mentioned my friend Steve a couple of times and I've and I've actually called him Steve and I've <laughs> I cannot write about Steve ever again without a pseudonym. Um because uh it, you know, his dog weed on my leg and I wrote about that. <laughs> so uh yeah, I I but I I don't know. I haven't been cancelled yet. So I think I think I'm doing okay. Now, we are staying in the 90s cuz you're stuck in a time warp, woman. Um when we're going to oh my Goodness. So in 1992, Cormac McCarthy won the Pulitzer Prize with all the pretty horses. And the next year, straight out the gate, uh, Annie Brawl wrote The Shipping News. Oh, my word. 1993 won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Such a sensational book. Tell us on Five My Life why you chose that. Oh, I love this book. I love it. I I could read it every year of my life. I love it. It's um, I mean, it's a story about a a journalist, a guy called Coyle, uh, who is he's just the most 
godforsaken character. He's just everything bad that can, that anything that can happen to him does happen to him. His wife cheats on him. His parents take their own lives. He's left with two daughters after his wife then subsequently dies. And he decides to move to the Canadian province of Newfoundland, where his parents uh, once owned a house and his aunt invites him over there. And he's given this job on the Gammy Bird newspaper. And what's amusing is that he's terrified of water and he's traumatised by um, by the death of his wife in a car accident. The news round he is given is the shipping news and car crashes. So this man is instantly re-traumatised as, as he goes about his day doing his job. But what I love about this story is that I started my job doing the shipping news in Auckland. I remember going down to the port and there's something about, even now, if I can't sleep, I listen to the BBC's shipping news and the, and the story of those beautiful, beautiful, you know, it's such a mellifluous sort of sound. And, and, and I remember when I was covering the shipping news, if I, it's tiniest. You know, this is back in print of it. I'd come back and type it up on my old Olivetti, you know, electric typewriter. And if you got one thing wrong, Nigel, like the ship was four minutes later coming into port than it, you said it was, I would get letters, like hundreds of letters from people. And these are proper letters with stamps on. Can you imagine how happy I was when I moved on to the zoo round? Um, <laughs> but um, what I love about this story is that it's journalism, it's the shipping news, it's the universality of of making a life for yourself. Um, so it's such a it's such a profound and it's on one level it's such a woeful story, but then it's it's so profound as well. And then what really I love about it is that I got a fantastic trip out of it. And I'll tell you what happened. So I writing my columns, I had to. Uh, there was a phase in journalism where everyone was writing to their younger selves. I hated it. I basically, I remember writing this column saying, if I have to write a column to my younger self, I'm going to euthanize myself to an air supply song. I hate this concept, <laughs> but I'm going to write a letter to my older self because that's something I can actually affect, you know, so I went about how I'm going to have fantastic posture for my, the rest of my life and I'm going to be outward looking and I'm going to stay curious and I'm going to go and eat seal flipper pie in Newfoundland because, of course, this is what Coyle basically lives on, this nasty, horrendous sounding pie, very um, anti-environmental, obviously. So I said this in the column the PR from Destination Canada reached out to me and nice. said, Angela, we'll send you to Canada. So off I trottled uh, with my partner to um, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. But these regions of Canada are so beautiful. They're populated by all these lighthouses. And I'm, I'm particularly fond of lighthouses. I love the storytelling within them. But I went to Newfoundland and I just... It was. It's the best place I've ever been because it, to me, um, geographically, landscape, it felt like New Zealand uh, and Scotland, where I'd spent a lot of time. But do you know what these people? These there was a fishing moratorium in the mid '90s, which stopped. It meant that they couldn't. Um, they couldn't basically make money from fishing anymore, and so they had to diversify. They had to, you know, basically pivot and be agile, and they've. You know, growing other things. They've they've looked at energy um, production. They've uh, tourism, and Canada has a system of have and have not territories. And the the haves are the ones that traditionally have been very wealthy and pump all this money into the national coffers, almost like a, and then they get paid it out again. And Newfoundland had always been the poor cousin. It never done anything. It, it, it had always taken money from this fund and never put money into it. But when it diversified and when it uh, pivoted, it was suddenly contributing to those coffers. And of course, Newfoundland is the uh, place. 
that is in the stage show Come From Away, which is when uh, 9-11 happened. All those flights flew into those various districts. Fabulous show. And just the most amazing story. And I can tell why, because the people are just gorgeous. They've they've got this funny speech, you know, this Newfoundlands, and they have just funny expressions. And I just found it utterly charming, very different, and how gorgeous to Go full circle. I love the Gammy Bird, the newspaper story in it. And, and there's something that tickled me. Where I mean, it shouldn't because it's very gruesome, but I think it, it's, there's lots of humour in the book as well, where uh, when it's a light news week, which if you're on Newfoundland, you're going to have a few, that he would be asked to rerun car crash stories and car <laughs> crash photos that hadn't happened. I mean, they'd happened... You know, 10 years ago, yes. into the file, we've got a whole yes. bunch of mangled cars. Could you just run a car crash story? Because people love them. The readership loves reading. And, you go, <laughs> and it makes me want to ask uh, about your career and being on a newspaper and if you could talk to some of the, the less optimal um, things that you have seen of how you have to work. Yeah, well, I've been sued working for a British newspaper, which wasn't pleasant, and the company had to pay out a lot, out a lot of money. It was because um, someone had basically not told me the truth. So I'd gone with it and, you know, reminded me to verify. I think that's the worst thing. Oh, no, I once got a written warning early in my career for the most ridiculous thing. It was a a bank holiday in England. And and in my intro, I'd said thousands of people will be confused. And of course, in a population the size of Britain, thousands means nothing. And I got a written warning for that. And you know what? I love that written warning, Nigel, because it then made me excellent. It made me have exacting standards. But look, I fear every week being the person on Media Watch. You can't not. But, you know, I've done some, you know, I've been, I did a lot of investigative work in my early career before children and um, I went undercover in a chicken factory. Uh, I posed as a sex addict once where I had to go and see different, this is when, you know, a lot of stars like Michael Douglas were coming out and saying that they were sex addict and the paper I worked for thought this was a complete scam and I had to go and have different treatments. So, you know, I had this fun, fun, I worked in a call centre and going undercover was, you know, you ran by the seat of your pants, working for a week in a chicken factory where you don't want anyone to find out that you're a journalist and uh, and you really don't want to be there. But you're telling Britain how the chicken gets from the, you know, the farm to their plate and all the things that happen within that factory and, and how close the, the kind of cat food is to the McDonald's Chicken nuggets. I mean, I never, I never ever eat a chicken nugget, and right. you know, no, no offense to McDonald's. I'm sure that's it's fine, but yeah, seeing the production of chicken was, um, you know, super interesting. But yes, it's risky sometimes this career, but it's such a privilege. Annie, when she was writing that book and interviewed about it, and that the chapters are all from the Ashley Book of Knots, mm. so that there'll be a, a picture of a knot and a description, mm. and and she very generously said this book wouldn't exist if it wasn't yeah. for Clifford Ashley, who in 1944 wrote this book, and so she's incredibly generous and and saying, you know, thank you, Clifford. Who would you say were your big inspirations? Oh, big inspirations in my career. Oh, I've interviewed so many famous people. None of them have inspired me. The ordinary people with extraordinary stories inspire me. Interviewing Sir Edmund Hillary inspired me because to tell a story of something you did in the 1950s again and again and again, but to do it with, to make it compelling and to bring it alive for a journalist all those years later was was remarkable. But the people that inspire me are the woman I interviewed who was pregnant and she had Alzheimer's and by the time the baby was born she didn't know that it was her baby and she held it in her arms. Um, The people that are the mother who had 
a little boy who had meningitis. And as I interviewed her, she was holding a cup that he had made and painted. And she told me about he was he was their last child, much wanted child. And he was in bed with her and her wife was feeling bad and they turned the light on and he was covered in welts and they took him to hospital. The hospital misdiagnosed it and he died the next day. And the sadness, the just the tears pulling down, the willingness, I think, of people to tell me their stories. I remember the very first time it happened to me was I was a very young journalist in England. I knew nothing. I didn't have children. And I knocked on a man's door whose wife had died of a disease called necrotizing fasciitis. Mm. And this man was standing there with a baby in his arms, a newborn baby girl. And he was shell-shocked. And he invited me in. And I felt, I am here to get a story, but I care that this has happened. And I think... What has always mattered to me in journalism is to be present as people tell you their story and to and to capture them as they would like to be seen. So my inspiration is all these people who are generous enough to speak to me, to tell me what's happened to them and to allow me to frame their experience with words which are actually mine. Um, I may have quotes, but how, how you shape a story is, it's like the scaffolding for it is as important. I've just done one with um, three women about breast cancer and I got to the end of it yesterday and I just thought, what an honour still to be doing this. So those are the people that inspire me, the ordinary ones. Now, your song is going to join the Five My Life Spotify playlist along with every single other one. It's a fantastic playlist if you haven't looked at it. It's just... I know, amazing. I have. I've oh, it's, isn't it great? It's, mm. it's completely random. If you're going on a long drive, it's never going to disappoint because it's not repetitive. Mm. And we're adding, for the first time ever, a Mutton Birds song. It's from their second album, Salty, uh, the single Anchor Me. Anchor Me. Tell us about that. Did you like it first? I loved it, and 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 lots of the lots of the comments on YouTube were, "Why is this not more famous?" It, it just sort of sits with you. It, it, it's not a piece of pop confection. It's mm. a really wonderful, wonderful mm. song. It's a love song, but to me, it is. It's it anchors me to New Zealand. It's in, by a New Zealand band called the Mutton Birds, headed up by Don McLashan, and you know, I was in New Zealand in the late 80s, early 90s, where, you know, music was at the centre of my universe and New Zealand bands were so prominent in that. But what I love about the song is is it has, it has a personal and a universal connection to me. So I'll tell you the personal one first. It was the song that my best friend, who I'll just call Jay, uh, uh, played at her wedding on her uh, for her wedding dance. And we had been friends since we were 11 years old. We were in school together, uh, growing up in regional New Zealand. And when we were 15, her dad took his own life. And my perfect, easy, soft, lovely childhood just suddenly was like, I could not believe this had happened. And I found it really haunting. Uh, we went round to her family's house that night and her mum wasn't in, in good shape. And I just remember that moment of actually feeling like this is this is the end of childhood. This is when really serious things happened. Over the next few years, she, you know, I went on to university. She started working and then moved over to the UK. 
And she, it's almost like she came back from the UK and then I went to live there. But we've maintained this friendship for more than 40 years. She is so dear to me. And she's had, she lost her dad. She doesn't have a relationship with her mum. And I am so proud of this person. I, 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 she is, she is so kind and yet she is also so self-determined and that's where and when she had this song uh, at her wedding I actually gave the wedding speech and it was such a privilege to talk about her I didn't get too deeply into her life but you can you know you can be proud of your children you can be proud of your partner you can be proud of your parents but this person who'd been with me since I was 11 years old i I look at her when she's coming over this weekend and I just uh, from New Zealand and I, I'm just honoured to be her friend. I just will never get that scene of them dancing out of out of my head. The other reason is that when in 2005 this song was re-recorded to mark the bombing of the Rainbow yeah. Warrior, of course that happened in 1985 and again it to me, that bombing of the green, this signature Greenpeace ship, and what was happening at that time is that uh, the Rainbow Warrior was going out to the Pacific and trying to stop uh, nuclear testing at Muro Atoll, which, of course, the French were doing a lot of nuclear testing. Two French agents came to New Zealand and blew up that boat. There was a man, a photographer on board. And over the next few years, the French government would not take responsibility for that bombing. It led to the New Zealand Prime Minister, uh, David Longy, taking a strong anti-nuclear stance. And whatever you think now about nuclear energy, and of course, I think it is something that has to be considered New Zealand has had this stance ever since, ever since the, um, you know, all these, all these years and, and very strongly, but eventually it was found that Francois Mitterrand, the then French president, had directed uh, this action. But what I love about it is, you know, when you grow up in New Zealand, you feel small. You're, you're at the bottom of the world. You're, everything about it feels little. And yet this country that I come from has this self-possession and this it punches above its weight. You know, we, the All Blacks, I'm a mad rugby fan and I love the All Blacks. And But I just, whenever I go back there, and I think this is one of the hard things, I imagine it's for you the same. My heart belongs to New Zealand. My wings were kind of born in England, but my home is very much Australia. This is where my children live. But it's in sometimes it's really hard to straddle those three wor- worlds. It's where do I belong? Every time I feel I, I fly into New Zealand, something happens in my heart and I can't explain it, but it's something about the little country that could. And I, I don't mean it little in a disparaging, minimizing way. I mean it in a really, really proud way. Yeah. Wow. Anchor me. Fantastic. Well, it's on the Spotify list, and I'm hoping lots of my listeners are going to discover the joy that I had when I listened to it. Um, Your fourth choice, we are going to the east of Africa, to the 47th largest country geographically, a country where 62 languages are spoken, 54 million people Kenya. You've gone large, Angela. Tell us why you've chosen Kenya. I'm glad you mentioned the 54 million people, Nigel, because I had to find one of them. <laughs> I had to find the oldest woman in the world. Oh, my. And when was this? This was in the, about 1994. Right. Uh, I was working in the UK and there was a tiny, what we call um, a, a brief. A brief is a small story in the newspaper back in the days of newsprint. And it said this Italian sociologist had found this woman he claimed to be the oldest in the world. And the editor 
came over to my desk, stabbed his finger at this story and went, go and find her. And, you know, in, in British journalism, if you're told to go and find this is the days of, you know, you did everything on spec. And so I had to find this woman. So I phoned the Italian uh, sociologist, anthropologist, and he said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going back until the end of the year. You can come with me then, but I'm not going then. Editor, we don't take no. So I got on a flight with a photographer called Colin to Nairobi, 54 million people, and I have to find the oldest woman in the world. How do you do it? Basically, what I figured is that he would have had to have used a translator. So he was Italian. He'd need to use a translator that could translate from Italian to Swahili. So I went to the universities. I went to three universities. On the third one, this is the days of visitors' books. I opened the visitors' book in the languages department, flicked back a few pages, and there is the name of the anthropologist. So I speak to the head of languages. I find out who the translator is. This guy is working in a in a hotel bar. We go and pay him to get a mate to take over his shift. And we drive. He, he, he knows where this woman is. And we drive like three hours outside of Nairobi. This is just after some tourists have been slaughtered in Uganda. So like I'm telling Colin to let my mum know that, you know, yeah. that I did love her. And the light's dying. And of course, you know, this, these are the days before newfangled cameras. So that it's four o'clock in the afternoon and you can't you don't want to go and sit down and wrench someone out and take their photograph before you interview them anyway so we get there we pull into this yard this mud hut there's chickens everywhere and I go into this tiny mud hut and there's this tiny tiny woman and she's wizened and she's wearing this sort of cardigan and she's completely bent over the 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 room is so tiny I, I can't imagine how she can even lie in there and it turns out she can't tell me if she's the oldest woman in the world but what she does know is that the tribe that she belonged to that denotes the year that she underwent genital mutilation. Right. So her only knowledge of her age is in relation to this event occurring. I mean, it was dreadfully sad, but she'd lived this hugely long life and it denoted she was about somewhere between 130 and 140. And of oh, course, with, right. with, with journalism, you always want to be able to say, this is the oldest woman in the world. But yeah. we had to revert and go, is this the oldest woman in the world? We got the pictures, we got back safely, and it was wonderful. It was a lovely story. But the reason I also loved Kenya is when I had children, my gorgeous daughters who are 22 and 19, I thought that that kind of work was over. I could never again go and, you know, globetrot and do exciting things. In fact, the, the day I was rung by a British newspaper to go to Thailand to report on the mistreatment of elephants, I was breastfeeding my daughter and that tears rolled down. I thought mm. this is the end, but it, it wasn't. It, in 2019, I returned to Kenya and I went with World Vision and uh, the AFL player Nick Natanui and we went to a little community halfway between Nairobi and Mombasa and to report on the child trafficking and the prostitution and the horrendous things that happen there. Basically, truck drivers will be taking their load from uh, Nairobi down to Mombasa and they'll stop at this village for the night. And African poverty is just... its it's immense. It's just immeasurable, the, the sadness and the stories. But in that area, there are some amazing people trying to stem this problem whereby, you know, parents will actually actively put their children forward for prostitution or mothers will leave their children locked in the house while they go off for days on end mm. and the children won't go to school. And so there's schools there that are basically setting up boarding houses so the children can come to school and be safe and these little children told us this story and one of them um, a little boy who had gone through a horrendous situation with sodomy and being abandoned by his father 
Nick Natanui is this beautiful Fijian AFL player from WA, and and he this little boy had told Nick his story on the condition that Nick would kick a footy with him afterwards. Right. Anyway, we're going to leave, and we've just forgotten that we said this boy. And there's this boy standing there, mm. and he's holding this ball, and the most exciting thing that's ever happened to him is six foot six or whatever he is, Nick, um, kicking this ball with mm. him. And I'll never forget that image. And I, I suppose what what's special to me about Kenya is that it's so other. It's so different to everything I know in terms of life and comfort and smells and uh, and sadness, really. And yet there is this, again, elements of, you know, thanks to charities like World Vision, self-determination. There was women doing amazing things, setting up their own banking systems, grinding their own flour, making their own jams out of tamarind. And it's such a privilege. I, I thought I wouldn't be able to tell those stories again, that I wouldn't be able to be um, a roving journalist. But Somehow I've managed to still do right. that, and I'm so grateful. In troubled parts of the world, and gosh, aren't there lots of them, part of the problem of of modern technology and the internet, where you can see everything and everything can be done quickly, digitally, uh, just real-life progress doesn't happen at the speed that we want it to happen. So when you tell the story oh, of, of you know that place where the truck, tr- truck drivers stop, I mean, you know how how awful I, I choose to believe that in 50 years time we'll have worked out a way where it doesn't exist but it, it, it ain't going to happen next week no. and and the, the angels that work in whatever it is in, in whatever country whatever issue to to keep on turning up and working for good in spite of the evidence that things aren't much better than they were yesterday and they won't be much better tomorrow but you can't use that as an excuse to give up. How, how they keep the flame alive is, is, I find, very motivating. Motivating, and particularly now when the charity sector is under, you know, the cost of living crisis and Ukraine and, and the people's money. In all sectors of charity have spoken and thinking of writing a story on this is, is how depleted they currently are at the moment. Uh, we're moving on to your possession, the fifth and final choice on Five of My Life. Uh, and you have chosen, I've got a picture of it here, you've chosen a Paul Smith tapestry Bought in London in 2004. Beautiful thing. It's got the sodding great love written on it. I love this. It hangs outside my bedroom. It's a tapestry. I, I was going to my uh, another really good friend and who works in uh, British newspapers was getting married in 2004. I went over to, I had my two little children. My husband was at that stage was um, covering a court case in Alice Springs. He was, he's a photographer and it was the the. Bradley Murdoch trial. So my parents came over from New Zealand, looked after my girls. And for the first time after in being a parent, I had a whole day to myself in London. I spent the day at the Tate Modern and then I was, it's Notting Hill. It was December. The fairy lights were everywhere in London, which you know what that's like, Nigel. And I walked past this gallery and there is this picture in the window. And a few years earlier when I'd been pregnant with my eldest daughter, I'd been in the south of France with my friend, the same friend whose wedding it was, and I'd seen this piece of art and I didn't buy it because it was, you know, cumbersome. We were moving to Australia. How was I going to get it back? Anyway, I saw this piece and I just, it was, it's, a tapestry. I loved it instantly. I just stood in front of this window, you know, sort of dusk in England, and I just thought, oh, it's going to cost too much, and we don't have the money, and uh, but I so want it, so I justified it, being December, that I was buying it for my husband for his Christmas <laughs> present, <laughs> which I think a lot of people have done over the mm-hmm. years. Anyway, it, it arrives. He loves it. He absolutely loves it. Our daughters love it. It hangs in our family home for many years. And why it's significant to me, Nigel, as I mentioned earlier, that 
you know, my marriage hasn't survived. It came to an end. But I have a really good friendship with my husband. And I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of it for our daughters. It's not perfect. It's not what either of us would have chosen. It's not It's not the ideal. It's not the conventional. We both have new partners, both lovely partners. We separated a year before Gwyneth Paltrow and, and Chris Martin talked about their conscious uncoupling. Now, I loathe that phrase. But I wonder when we have long lives and people grow apart, whether the ability to ma- maintain a friendship and respect, because of course, you once loved this person enough to marry them. I, I still love my husband and I will always love my husband and I will always uphold him because we have two children together and because he's a good person and because, you know, that's personal, the reasons why our marriage didn't work out. But, and, and sorry, so then of course we separated in this in this. Did he take the blanket? Well, here's the thing. It's this tapestry <laughs> which hangs on the wall. It was his. It was his <laughs> gift uh, to him. But he very kindly let it stay with myself and the girls. He was traveling a lot. And so we still have it. And, you know, he still comes around for a cup of tea occasionally or to pick up one of the, one of the girls. And um, it could have been something that haunted me, that picture. But it represents something else. It represents life-changing and acceptance and imperfection and understanding. And I sometimes worry terribly, as every parent does, when they feel like they've messed up their children's lives by separation. And, you know, there are elements where I think we genuinely did. I'm I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Divorce is hard. But the one thing I think they take from it is, well, they take many things and it's their story to tell what they take from it. But I think and I see in them an empathy for other people that might have struggled because they've had those uncomfortable feelings. They know what it's like to to feel, you know, that discomfort of your family life rupturing. Uh, and I hope they take that with them in their lives. And I hope they have some comfort. You know, we spent Christmas together um, this year that my ex was with um, a whole lot of family and things. Um, he'll come in if my partner's there and have a cup of tea. It's not always perfect, but it's survivable. For my 30th uh, birthday, I was given, I mean, it's, 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 it's a small little wallet mm. to me. I mean, I keep my bus pass in it, uh, but it's Paul Smith. Oh, I know. Uh, and um, look at the detail. So no one would know. Oh. when I, I mean, I use that this morning to come in on the train, right? And I, and I no one would know. It's got beautiful oh, pink Paul pink, Smith in the middle. Magenta. Well, that was his signature, isn't yeah. it? Always to have surprise pops of colour. And, you know, as you can see in that picture, the, the O of the love is the Union Jack. The V is a Rastafari and the E is a rainbow. It's, it's all yeah. of it is He, he is a legend. And, mm. and I love the way he, he is still independent and his company is privately owned and he owns mm. the majority of it. Because mm. the moment he sells it to, God love him, you know, Gucci, you go, it, it will be special, but a little bit less special. As so many of them yeah. are. Now, I've got two more questions for you. With the the wisdom that you have accumulated and your writing and the people that you talk to and your life experience, do you look back and see a fork in the road where if you did the, the sliding doors thing, do, do you look back and see... Something that you can't put an old head on young shoulders that you go, that was that was solvable if we hadn't moved to Africa or I'd taken that job. Or do you go, it was always going to go in that way and we had a lovely 20 years and that was that? No, I think all relationships are solvable. I, I, um, I have great hope for long term partnerships. I'm not I'm not um, cynical at all about them. I think that 
if I was to say one thing, and, and I say it to, well, yeah, I don't say it to younger people, although I wrote a column recently about um, communication in those early years after having a baby, I would say uh, get in early. When there's a crack, don't paper over the crack, don't ignore the crack, address the crack. We have this incredible society now where we deal with mental health and psychologists and we have access. I mean, I know they can be expensive, but if you get in there and you talk about things earlier, I think your chances of getting through it are greater. Even if you've just got a glimmer. I remember for years driving in my car and being unsure and uncomfortable and being very sure that, you know, that there was problems in our marriage. But I think if you address things earlier, you're willing to communicate, you perhaps look at some of the books that that are there that can uh, help you. You know, marriage, uh, Esther Perel talks about it being this tricky thing between closeness and distance. Like you need distance to have desire, yet you need closeness to have companionship. And those two are, are always fighting with each other. But to answer your question more quickly, if there's something you're concerned about, address it. Don't don't not address it. Thank you for answering that question. I think Esther Perel's work is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary because she's normalised friction and difficulty in, in relationships, which of course there's friction and difficulty. We If we live with people pressed up against them for many years, you know, I'm in my mid-50s now. I only, I think I grew up in the last five years. I think I have learned so much more in the last five years than I have in the decades before it. And I think it, it's possible to learn more earlier. It's about how can you maintain mm. love and, and, and the notion of growing in love, you know, falling in love. Mm. How about growing in love? Love is a verb, not just a noun. Yes, a verb, it's a choice. It's a, it's a doing word. You yeah. Know? The sixth question, who would you like to hear on Five My Life next and why? I'd love to have you to interview Ellen DeGeneres. And I say that because Ellen DeGeneres phoned me. I wrote an article. She was getting massively hammered. I wrote an article for news.com where I just said, hang on, why are we hammering this woman who is extraordinary, who's done, you know, had this public profile for all these years, everyone was piling on her. And you know what, Nigel, she phoned me. And no she, way! And she said, thank you for standing up for me. Now, because it's unlikely that we're able to get her, because I didn't get her phone number, it came up as, you know, no caller ID, I'm going to um, recommend no less impressive and no less um, wonderful uh, Taria Pitt. I'd um, love to get And Taria the reason on. I'm saying Taria is because uh, I interview TV people all the time. I interview people um, with extraordinary stories and I interview people with profiles. And I think that Taria has a profile and yet she also has an extraordinary story. She has, of, of course, was burned terribly. She's gone on to um, be at the forefront of a lot of um, self-development work. She's an incredible public speaker and she is just funny as all get out. That's such a good choice. I, I mean, both of them are, but uh, I'd love to get her on Five Life. In today's society, there can be instances where you think some people haven't got enough to actually worry about. So they create things, you know, is my belly button symmetrical or whatever it bloody is, or have I got a monobrow or whatever? You go, well, <laughs> can I introduce you to some people who've got real problems and they deal with it? I know. Turia has three fingers on one hand and she finds it really hard to do up buttons and to unscrew caps on things. But she only told me that about the fifth time I interviewed her because I pressed her for it. She doesn't actually talk about this. She has a special device for doing up buttons on her shirt. Um, but you're absolutely right. That resilience... She is amazing. Uh, Angela Mollett, thank you so much for coming on Fiber Life and sharing your stories. My pleasure. Loved it. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.